some of you might know that the month of October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And the purpose of this month is to remind us that there are still many, many people that are being affected by uh, domestic violence. This morning, we're going to spend some time addressing this, this issue. And I can imagine, go ahead, you guys, feel free, go ahead and take the offering. I can imagine that uh, some of you are thinking, like, why in the world would we talk about something like this in the context of the church? Well, if you'll take a minute and just look at our vision statement up here on the wall, we say that the vision of City Church is to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a part of being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ is being concerned about the things that Jesus, as a part of the triune God, uh, is concerned about. And throughout the Scriptures, it's very clear that God is very near the plight of the afflicted and the oppressed. This is a theme that runs all through Scripture. Just give you an example of this from Psalm 10. The psalmist is writing, and he writes in very uh, stark terms about this. He says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, You will not require it. You have seen it. For you have beheld mischief and vexation to take into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You've been the helper of the orphan." Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. Domestic violence is one of those issues that I think if you haven't been personally confronted with, it's easy to forget that there are many people uh, who are being confronted with it daily, uh, who are suffering under the hand of someone who claims to love them. As much as I wish it weren't true, uh, I feel very certain this morning that there are some of you who have been affected by domestic violence in some way, shape, or form, uh, form. Uh, and maybe even are presently being affected by it in some way. Maybe there are even some of you who are in marriages right now, today, in which you have suffered or are presently suffering domestic violence. And so this morning, to bring attention to this uh, very important issue, and perhaps to help free some of you from it, we're going to take a break from the series that we're in, uh, The Last Days of Jesus Christ. We've got a couple more Uh, Sundays of that series. We're going to take a break from that today. We're going to talk about, uh, as I said, domestic violence. And it's my pleasure this morning to introduce to you a woman who is herself a survivor of domestic violence and has courageously made it her mission to help others uh, who are victims of domestic violence as well. Would you please give a warm City Church welcome to Ms. Carla Webb, founder of If Only You Knew... Ministries. I said it was if only you knew, but it's actually if, if, if you, you only yeah. knew. My, uh, my mistake. Right. Right. I'm going to crawl up on this. Uh... 
Yeah. Are you comfortable? Uh, yeah, with my feet dangling. It's quite, <laughs> quite comfortable. I'm used to that, though. I mean, I've been five feet tall for a, a very long time. Very long time. time. Okay. Very long Good. time. Yeah. Carla, thanks so much for coming. We really, really appreciate you being here with us. And I think domestic abuse is a subject that doesn't get talked about very often in churches. You and I met uh, back uh, in the summertime, and someone had introduced us and said, uh, she said to me, you've got to meet this woman. And uh, we made plans for this back in the summer. Very glad that you're here with us. But I want you to tell your story in, in just a moment. Uh, but I guess the first question I have is, why have you chosen to speak out about this issue? Uh, well, because I can. Yeah. Because I can okay. speak out about it. Um, I am a survivor. I have been through it. Uh, so I don't just talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, from an outsider's perspective, and there are a lot of women who don't have a voice. They don't have that privilege of being able to speak out about it because their voice has been silenced, and um, uh, either silenced by death because, uh, unfortunately, that is an outcome mm-hmm. that happens way too often in domestic violence, yeah. or they uh, are silenced by their abusive partner, and they can't speak out about it. So I am in a position now where I can speak. I can be a voice for the voiceless. And so that's what uh, I believe that I've been called to do. Fantastic. So let me, let me start with this question. Uh, did you come from a background, like a family background of domestic abuse? No, not, not at all. Uh, I came from a, my parents have been married, they'll be married 52 years in wow. December. Wow. Yeah, and they have a loving, beautiful relationship. Um, my parents model the way Christ designed it. My father is the spiritual head of our, our house. And just this weekend, I was visiting over at my mom and dad's house, and um, my dad was there, my mom was on her way there. And my mom walks around the corner, and my dad can see her through the window. And he's like, oh, isn't she beautiful? So that's what I was raised. I was raised with. And I'm the youngest of of three girls. And so we were daddy's girls, and he loved us, and he loved our mom. So I had no um, prior history with this at all. So I guess the logical question is then, how did you end up in a marriage in which domestic abuse was a significant part of the marriage. I can imagine anybody in your situation uh, would probably ask themselves, you know, how did I end up in this? But how did you, how did you end up in this? Uh, well, I guess it was that naivete of not having ex- any exposure to it. So when it presented itself to me, I di- had, didn't have any idea what it looked like. And um, I had just graduated from high school. I was 18 years old. Three weeks out, uh, I was a, at church camp. I was a church camp counselor, mm-hmm. and um, I met this young man. And he was, you know, kind of in a state of brokenness. Mm-hmm. And you know, he was. He his story was that he was searching. Um, that he had been raised in church, but he wasn't in church right now. Uh, he had gotten away, but he had been praying that God would send him someone to help him become the man that he knew he wasn't, but he wanted to be. And so I took this on as a mission that I was going to be his his helper and his partner. And I felt like that, you know, God had paired me, this strong Christian 
well, I thought I was a woman at the time. You know, right. I was 18. So this strong Christian woman uh, had paired me with this broken young man to help him in his journey towards Christ. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, that's how I, how I saw it. And then it was very uh, whirlwind. Um, whenever we met, I mean, I was the center of his world. I, I was wonderful. I mean, I was everything that he had ever dreamed of in, in a, in a partner and in a girlfriend. And so, uh, he really put me up on this pedestal Mm -hmm. and, um, it was very flattering and I was extremely consumed by it. I mean, who, what woman doesn't want to be the center of someone's attention? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's, I now know that there's actually a term for it. It's called love bombing. Okay. Uh, so it's, it is something that's very typical um, of people who are very charismatic, and they kind of draw you in and make you feel like the center of, their, of the world, of their world. And uh, it's very flattering. And so that's how, you know, I got, I got sucked into it. And also the God factor. You know, the bringing the God into it. Yeah, so I was going to say, uh, on the one hand, you've got this guy who's saying to you, um, you know, make, help me be uh, the man that I want to be, and I'm sure that that is very compelling in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it seems like that all of that attention would be, you know, a young girl's dream. Like lots oh, yeah. of attention, a, a guy who's crazy about you. Mm-hmm. What was the first red flag? The, the first major red flag was I was at college. I had gone away to college at IU. No, I, don't boo me if you're a UK fan, but I, I went to IU, and um, I was appro- there were a lot of little things, but there were, I was approaching my first semester of finals. And, of course, this is my first year of college, so I've never experienced finals before. I just know that I need to be studying. I don't know what to expect, but I know it's not going to be easy. And so I thought, I'm going to stay up here and study. Now, prior to this, I I had never stayed up there a weekend. Okay. Or he would come up. So we had never spent a weekend apart from each other. Either I came home or he came up. So this weekend I proposed that I'm not going to come home, that I'm going to stay up there because I need to study. Mm-hmm. And we got in this huge argument because he said I was not allowed to stay up there mm. and study. And at this point, you know, these little things had started adding up. And I thought, who are you? tell me what I'm going to do, what I am not going to do. This is college. This is my future here. I am going to stay up here. So we get in this huge argument, and that's when I got the ultimatum. And he said, if you do not come home, I will come up there, and I will hunt you down. Wow. And I will find you. Goodness gracious. And that was the first time that I really thought, if you were your own best friend, you would get out. You would tell you to get out. But I, I didn't. You know, I, this was the actual conversation that I had in my head. Okay, so he is scaring me. And he is telling me that he's going to hunt me down. And he's going to find me. And I believed him. Mm. Because I said, I got all kinds of places I can hide. You know, you can't find me. And he said, when you 
come back to your dorm, which you're going to have to do eventually, I will be there hmm. waiting for you. Hmm. It's got to be frightening. And I, and I knew it to be true. Hmm. So at this point in my mind, what I'm thinking is, am I going to end this relationship? I can either fight this fight and say, Mm-mm, this isn't happening. I am done. Or am I staying in this relationship? And at this point, I still was in that this is a God thing. Mm. And if I walked away from him, I was walking away from God and God's plan. Mm. Because that seed was so deeply sown Mm. into uh, our relationship. And so I, I stayed. And I didn't go home. I went home. Just quickly... Before I move on to the next question that I want to ask you, do you, looking back on it, do you see that seed being planted? Was that, was that an intentional part of the strategy, of his strategy from the very beginning? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know it now, but what an abuser does, the, one of the very first things that they do is isolate you. Hmm. They isolate you from your friends, and they isolate you from your family. Hmm. And... Essentially, they become the enemy. Your mm-hmm. friends and your family become the enemy because your, your friends and your family, they start seeing those red flags. And mm-hmm. that's what started happening. You know, my friends and my family were like, I don't, this doesn't seem right. I don't like this. Mm-hmm. I don't like the way he treats you. I don't like the way he talks to you. I don't like that we don't get to spend any time mm-hmm. together anymore. Well, then when you start standing up for yourself and, and you know, you say, well, my mom said that she doesn't think that this is how, you know, her, my dad never treated her this way. And, and so then it is, well, your parents, they just want to control you. Mm-hmm. So they spin it on the other people mm-hmm. and they say that your friends and family, that they are the ones who truly want to control you and they don't like to see you, like my parents didn't like me becoming independent. Mm-hmm. They wanted me to be dependent upon them and now that I have this boyfriend, I'm becoming, uh, I'm having this relationship with him mm-hmm. and becoming my own person and... My parents don't like that. So they start planting the seed that uh, your friends and your family are the enemy. Gotcha. And they want to isolate you from them. So you get, you're at IU. Mm-hmm. You're dating at this point. You've decided that you're going to stay in, the, uh, in this relationship. Yeah. At what point do you guys, uh, at what point do you get married? Well, we got engaged within five months. Okay. Yes, it was a fabulous idea. Um, <laughs> We got engaged within five months, and we were, uh, I finished out the school year, uh-huh. which he w- was trying to get me to come home. He wanted me to quit, and he wanted me to come home, right. but I fin- my parents refused. I finished out the school year, um, and he was living with my parents, so I'm coming home from college, and he's in my parents' home, mm. so he convinces me uh, that if I will agree to marry him, then he'll go. Then you know he'll go back to his parents' house until we get married. So we get married uh, December uh, of that year. So we got engaged after five after five months, and we got married that following December. Yeah. So he's living with mom and dad up until yeah. that point. Yeah. You remember the movie Julia Roberts living with the enemy? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. So yeah. that was really how that was working yeah. for your family. They yeah. were living with the enemy. Uh, I. I had the conversation, um, you know, with my dad as I was getting ready to move home for the summer, and, 
And I said, I, uh, I don't know what, I'm, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's here. He's living here. I had no place. I had no safe place. Mm-hmm. He had invaded my l- literal home, mm-hmm. and I had nowhere to get away from him. So how, what, at what point in the marriage does um, abuse, do you start to see and experience both emotional, I suppose, and physical abuse? Uh, well, on our, we got into a huge fight on our honeymoon, which was set a very lovely tone. The very first night of our, of our honeymoon, uh, we got in this fight, and he said, if this is the way you are going to behave, then I'm just going to take you home right now. Wow. Um, and then on the way home from our honeymoon, I asked him, we had gone to uh, Branson, Missouri, for uh, our honeymoon, and which is about an eight, eight-hour drive. And uh, I asked him where we're going to eat lunch. So where are we going to eat lunch? And he said, you are on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know. Hmm. And I cried yeah, all I the way imagine. home because he was dead serious. He never would tell me where we were going to eat lunch because he said, I have a plan and you're just along for the ride. And that was on the way home from our honeymoon. And then in the first year of our marriage, um, he, he punched a hole. We got into an argument and he punched a hole in the wall. Mm. Um, and that, that set the tone from the very beginning. And then how does that develop? How does the physical Abuse develop in the marriage? Slowly. Sometimes. Slowly. I, I, didn't, I didn't consider him grabbing me mm-hmm. by the arm physical abuse. I didn't consider him putting his forehead to my forehead and physically being physical intimidation. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand that as being physical abuse. I, I thought physical abuse was he's not punching me, he's not slapping me, he's not kicking me. It never occurred to me that pinning me up against the wall and punching a hole in the wall right next to my head, mm-hmm. that was physical abuse. Uh, driving recklessly, I didn't realize that was physical abuse. Mm-hmm. That's physical intimidation. Um, so those are the types of things that would that would build up. Um, oh, and you just don't recognize it. I would just think he's not hitting me. Did he start hitting you at some point? He never hit me. Mm-hmm. I he at no time did he you know smack me, punch me. Uh, it was using physical intimidation yep, and fear and fear, and then doing things like punching holes in the wall yeah. or throwing things, sure. um, but he did not physically hit me so was when, did you ever consider when did you start considering that i've got to do something about this i've got to get I've either got to get out or i don't know whatever else you might have considered at the time well, um, so we get married. And we have our first son. And we are in an argument. And, you know, something that my, da- my mom reminded me of is my, we da- my dad said, um, he told me, he said, Carla, nobody should make you cry more than they make you laugh. Hmm. And he told me that before we got married. Because, as I said, we got into this big argument. Like, every story starts with, we got into this big right. argument. Right. And my dad said, nobody should make you cry more than they make you laugh. Hmm. And so we had gotten to a big argument. And I have a, a one-year-old son. Mm. 
and I decide that I'm going to leave. And he, he gets in the shower, so I see my opportunity here. So while he's in the shower, I grab my son, and I, I grab my things, and I get in the car, and I start backing out of the driveway. And he comes out the door, and he catches me. Hmm. And he literally jumped on the hood of my car. Hmm. And I, I drove across. We live in a small town, and I drove across the town, not a block or two, but literally from one side of town to the other side with him on the hood of my car until I got to a sheriff's deputy. Nobody's, no, no police stopped you along the way? Well, there was one, there was one police like officer a... in the town, and I oh, was driving okay. to his house. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I was I driving you. there. <laughs> and so I get to the, the sheriff's deputy, and uh, he, he, I honk the horn and, to get him to come out, and my husband gets off the hood of my car, and um, he is saying, she's not taking my son. She's not taking my son. And the sheriff's deputy convinces me that my best option in that time is to give my husband my son. Mm. Yeah. And that moment, that changed my life for the next 10 years. 10 years. Because in that moment, I reconciled myself to the fact that I was never going to be able to get away from him. And if I did get away from him, there was a huge possibility that I was going to be handing my son over to him. And how was I going to protect him? So that changed my life for 10 years. Did, Did anybody ever come along to you, maybe, or did you think, or did you ever go talk to someone, you know, let's say at your church or something, about, um, can I get out of this? Can I divorce? Is that an option? Did you ever think about that? I, I didn't ever go and speak to a pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to marriage counseling, mm-hmm. which in an abusive situation is the worst thing that you can do. Mm. If you are in an abusive situation, the last thing that you want to do is go to counseling together. Because in the counseling environment, what you're supposed to be doing is telling them the truth so that it can be brought out in the open. And then with the counselor's help, you can work through those issues Mm -hmm. to hopefully a common goal. But with an abuser, there isn't a common goal. And everything that you confess... Um, your truth that you speak, thinking it's a safe place, then gets totally turned on you. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went through several counselors because uh, it didn't go the way he thought it was going. You know, it was going to go because mm. they would they were wanting to give him advice mm-hmm. <laughs> as to how he could you know change and mm-hmm. be we could have a healthy marriage. Uh, so everybody was the enemy. You know, they weren't, uh, so I didn't go to a pastor, but I did, we did go to counseling and, um, it was not, it was not helpful. It was to us in that situation. Did you ever think about divorce? Yes. And? Yes. Um, my mantra was, I didn't get married to get divorced, especially that first year. Mm -hmm. I didn't get married to get divorced. I didn't get married. And, and to me, um, you know, I had a strong Christian faith and so divorce just wasn't an option. Um, because in my 
my upbringing, you had two reasons to get divorced. Your husband was cheating on you or he hit you. And those were the two reasons. And he wasn't cheating on me and he wasn't hitting me. And so I was in it. There was no getting out. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've talked about this at our church before about divorce and the fact that what the Bible teaches about divorce is actually much more complex than that. Um, What did you end up learning about it? Did you finally kind of realize that that understanding of divorce, of what the Bible says about marriage and divorce, did you realize that that was, did you come to a place where you realized that that was incorrect? Yes. Yeah. Um, You know, I am pro-marriage. I, I sure. definitely think it is a covenant sure. uh, before God, and, and I made that covenant. I made that promise. Um, but me leaving the abusive situation did not break that covenant. Mm-hmm. Him becoming being abusive is what broke that covenant. Mm-hmm. So leaving and divorcing the abuse, that it, God does not ask you to stay in an abusive situation. And, you know, we, we hear so much, we, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, you know, mm-hmm. that's how uh, that, the relationship, marriage relationship is supposed to be. And we focus on the women submit to your husbands, you know, honor and submit to your husbands. Absolutely. But the majority of that passage is directed to how the husband is to treat his wife. Mm -hmm. And the husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And he Mm -hmm. is to, you know, love, honor, cherish. And abuse breaks that. And so it took me, and I don't know that I was even to that spot whenever I decided that I was leaving, Mm -hmm. that I, I had to read more and pray more and realize that um, the abuse broke that. The divorce did not break that. Yeah, I think it's important for people here to understand that abuse takes a number of different forms. I mean, it's not always punching another person. Sometimes it can be emotional abuse. Sometimes it can be physical abuse. And the the uh, sort of the culture of the marriage is one of fear. Do you mind if I read to you something that you uh, that I read in your Absolutely. story that, that I just, I'd, I'd like to read? You talked about this. You said that you came across this quote someplace, and you said, um, you said, this person said, I am pro-marriage. You said that just a moment ago. I am against the bonds of marriage becoming bondage because of abuse. The loving God I know would never ask people to sacrifice their lives for the notion of keeping the pretense of an institution that has already been corrupted and poisoned by the evil of abuse. Abuse corrupts it. Abuse destroys it. Divorce from abuse does not. I think that's very profound. Yeah. Whenever, whenever I read that, and, and it's only been in the last, uh, you know, actually it's probably six months that I came across that particular passage, and I thought that that is how I feel about it. Yeah. That's, that's how I believe God feels about it. I'm guessing, yeah. too, that in the context of your marriage, you know, there's probably times that it wasn't all bad. Right. Uh, it wasn't all bad, you know, all the time. You have those... Uh, it, abuse follows a cycle. It's a three-phase cycle, and you have that tension-building phase where you're, like, walking on eggshells, and that was pretty much the state of our normal every day is that I felt like I was walking on eggshells, not necessarily knowing when things were going to then explode, Uh which is the next phase. You have the explosion and that's where, you know, the screaming and the hollering and the, you know, verb, the intense verbal abuse or in a lot of times physical abuse occurs. 
But then you have the third phase, which is the honeymoon phase. Mm-hmm. And the honeymoon phase, these, this is a cycle that continues to repeat over and over and over again. But the honeymoon phase always comes along too. Mm-hmm. And so you have that intense of, I am so sorry. This is never going to happen again. I, you know, I, I will change and I have changed. And, you know, you get flowers and gifts and go, or possibly go on a trip or we just need to get away. The stress, you know, we're just both, our marriage is under so much stress and mm. I'm working hard and you have the kids or whatever. And so let's just get away. Let's go on a trip. Um, and so you have that honeymoon phase, but unfortunately, after the honeymoon phase, eventually you go back into the same cycle, and mm-hmm. you have the tension building, and then you have the explosion, and then you have the honeymoon, and so it just keeps on keeps going. Keeps going around. Keeps going around. Um, yeah. How many boys, how many children do you have? I know you've got boys, right? Yes. Okay, how many? I have two boys. Okay. Yeah. So he's doing this to you. Is it, is it reserved just for you, or does it end up with um, the boys? No, it is not reserved just for me. Um, the, the verbal and emotional abuse also spills over to my children, but the physical abuse, that is where it occurred, is with my, with my boys. Mm. Um, because he, it was under the disguise of, um, you know, spanking and, and punishment mm-hmm. is what, um, somebody sneaking uh, up on us sneaking, from behind oh, there. Oh. Yeah. But it was under the disguise of, uh, physical, um, spanking and, and things like that, but it would cross the line and bruises would be left on, on the boys. And, um, you know, there finally came the line in the sand. Yeah. How, how did that happen? What happened? Um, I had gone out of, t- I had gone to an overnight. I had not seen my best friend from college because I was not allowed to see my best friend from college for several years. And I had decided I'm going to go, we're going to see each other. And we had made plans to go to an, uh, you know, overnight. And um, I had, I went and I came home, and he was not speaking to me. He was giving me the silent treatment mm-hmm. because he was punishing me mm-hmm. uh, because I had gone and had a good time, mm-hmm. and uh, that was frowned upon. Mm-hmm. And so I came in. He wasn't speaking to me, whatever. Um, I go back to my bedroom because this is kind of how we functioned. I, wherever, he was in one side, in one part of the house, then I would be in the other. And if he would come there, then we would shift. And we would just stay away from each other. So I go back to the bedroom, and my son comes in, my oldest son. And I'm talking to him, and I go to hug him or pat him, and he flinches. Hmm. And, I, and I said, well, you know, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he, he pulled up the pant leg of his shorts. He pulled up the shorts, and he showed me the bruises. And his whole thigh was black and blue. Goodness where his dad had um, beat him with a bell. And, of course, uh, it was all my fault because I had gone on this girl's trip. And so my son was not behaving. My son was actually angry at me, so he was acting out against his father. And um, so he beat him with a bell, and he 
what I later found out is that he got him down on the ground and he had a bruise on each one of his feet. Mm. He had a bruise on one of his feet from where his dad was standing on his foot mm. so he couldn't get away. Mm. Sorry. That's okay. I understand. Um, it never gets easy. No. Nope. And bet. so he had a bruise on his one foot um, so he couldn't get away. Yeah. And he was beating him with the belt, and then he had a bruise on his other foot from a belt mark yeah. from where um, he liter- he testified in court that whenever he brought the belt up, it got caught on the ceiling fan. Mm. And so it got misdirected, and it hit his, hit his foot. Yeah. And uh, my first reaction to him was to tell him not to say anything. Your son. My son. Mm -hmm. I said, don't say anything. Mm. And uh, I now know that that was the best reaction that I could have in that situation. Mm Because what I'm thinking in my mind, when I send him out of the room, I mean, like, my head is spinning. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with you? Mm. What is wrong with you? Why did you just tell your son to not say anything? You just found out that he's been beaten, and your words are don't say anything? Mm. Why did I not go grab a bat Mm -hmm. and march down the hall and tell him, don't you ever touch my son again? Mm -hmm. Why didn't I do that? Mm. And, I mean, I... I now know that had I done that, then it would have ended extremely badly. Yeah. It would have, would gone, have gone from it would have bad, gone from to bad, bad to worse. Yeah. But I knew that he was my husband was going to be leaving in a short period of time to go to basketball practice, mm-hmm. and so I was just buying time until we could get to for him to leave, mm-hmm. and he did leave, and. Once he left, then I got my son, and I took pictures. Mm-hmm. I took the pictures. This was on a Sunday night, and um, I, I I took them, and I, I didn't quite know what I was going to do yet. Mm-hmm. I knew I had to do something, though. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I, de- I decided over the next couple of days, this wasn't an instant, but over the next couple of days, um, I chose to send those pictures to my sister so that I could not back out. Yeah. Um, so there's some accountability there. Accountability, because I knew my own cycle. I knew that eventually I would start justifying it, and I would start saying, well, it wasn't that bad, and I shouldn't have gone out of town, and, you know, he was acting up. And, and so I was going to start justifying it because that was, the, that was my cycle. That is mm-hmm. the cycle of abuse. So I sent them to my sister so that she would step in. I knew she would step in if I started backing down. Mm -hmm. And I knew that she was at a point that she was willing to protect my kids, even if I wasn't Mm. willing to, Mm. that she would step up. So I sent them to her. She made me promise that I was going to leave. Promise me you're going to leave. Tell me when. So I told her that Thursday morning I was going to leave. Mm -hmm. And so she called my parents, and she and they were waiting for me. So Thursday morning, I sent him off to work. Bye. Have a good day. Just kept acting like everything was normal. Have a good day. I got my kids on the school bus. I sent them to school, and then I drove to my parents' house. Mm. Um, and my dad took me to Albion Fellows Bacon Center. 
Wow. And we sat down with an advocate, and she walked me through an exit plan. She helped me fill out the paperwork for a protective order, a restraining order, which ultimately did get granted. Mm-hmm. And um, she told me my best, the best thing I needed to do was to get out of town. Mm-hmm. And so my, I, I went and I picked my sons up from school. And this is the thing that I, I have to think about from their perspective. They went to school and their life was normal. And they got picked up from school, and their world changed yeah. forever. Yeah. So they go to school thinking it's a normal every day, and they get picked up from school, and we head to Atlanta, yeah. and we head to my sister's. I can't imagine from their perspective yeah. ha- what that did to them, mm-hmm. that their life changed. Like that. And it was never the same. Yeah. So you had a restraining order? Yes. That stopped the abuse? No. No, I was continually told that the restraining order was bogus. That was his favorite word. Mm-hmm. Bogus. It's bogus. It's bogus because it was all a lie mm-hmm. because he was not abusive towards me. He continued to be verbally, emotionally abusive. Um, he continued to break the restraining order. And eventually he did get charged and convicted with invasion of privacy okay. because he kept breaking the restraining order. Um, and over time, he, he, the abuse against my oldest son when I left, that abuse was substantiated by CPS. Uh-huh. I spent the next four years in court getting the verb, trying to get the verbal and emotional abuse stopped mm-hmm. because it's extremely difficult to document verbal and emotional abuse. Sure. How do you document it? Sure. It's, your word against their word. And so he would do things like he would provoke my oldest son into these rages. Mm-hmm. And then he would videotape my son and call the police. Mm. And so then when the police would show up, he would show the video to the police officer and say, see how he's behaving, how he is acting out. And then the police officer would say to my son, son, boy, you just, you need to obey your father. Right. So he's turning the whole thing he's around. He's turning the whole yeah. thing around. So we had a second case of abuse substantiated against my youngest son. He beat my youngest son mm. with a belt. Mm. And so CPS substantiated that, but they did not intervene in visitation. They would not intervene, so I had to take them back. And we did finally get, because of that incident and another incident put together, uh, we did get supervised visitation, and we got it at the Parenting Time Center. And the director of the Parenting Time Center is here today, and mm-hmm. she saved my children's lives. Mm-hmm. And I thank her for that. So the Parenting Time Center, what it does is um, it offers supervised visitation by a social worker. And it is all documented, and mm-hmm. thou. And that is admissible in court. Everything that they had told their behavioral specialists and their counselor over the last four years was not admissible in court mm-hmm. without bringing them in and paying you know, thousands of dollars to have them testify. So that documentation is what got me full physical, legal 
custody of my boys, and they have zero visitation with their father now. So at that point now, you know, all of that legally, you've got all of that behind you, but mm-hmm. I'm sure you're, I mean, you're not emotionally free of this thing. Uh, no. No. I was uh, an emotional wreck. I can imagine. I, after all of those years of abuse, I was completely spiritual, emotionally bankrupt. Yeah. Absolutely bankrupt. And it was, it took a long time of just fighting the fight and getting literally on my face Mm. before God and just begging him to put the pieces back together again. I can imagine that. How did all of this become if you only knew ministries? Well, the actual phrase, if you only knew, comes from John 4.10, where Jesus meets the woman at the well, and he says to her, if you only knew who I am and the gift that God has for you, you would ask me for a drink of living water. Mm. And she, what is this living water that you speak mm-hmm. of? And he tells her how he can restore her soul. Mm. And so originally, that's where the if you only knew came from, if you only knew. Mm. But then it, as I got to thinking about it, I, just, I felt like God was saying, you know, if you only knew the gift that I have for you, if you only knew who I am, if you only knew what I can do for you, I can put you back together. I can redeem Mm -hmm. your story. Mm -hmm. If you only knew that I never ask you to be abused. I never ask you. That wasn't me. If you only knew it wasn't me who asked you to stay in an abusive marriage. If you only knew that your husband had free will. Mm -hmm. If you only knew He made choices that went against what my perfect plan was for you Mm -hmm. and your marriage, if you only knew that. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's that double. It is if you only knew what God can do for you and Mm -hmm. that he can put you back together. But on the other side of it, I lived my life for so long thinking if you only knew what was going on in my home. If you only knew what was going on in my marriage, if you only knew how completely bankrupt Mm -hmm. I am. Mm. So that's how the if you only knew came about. I can imagine a lot of people, you know, if you just look at their marriage from the outside, their family from the outside, you know, your marriage probably and your kids probably looked like, uh, hey, we've got it all together. But uh, yeah, yeah, we were at church every Sunday. You know, I was a worship minister. Uh, so I was up in front of the church leading worship and leading small groups and having bringing them. We had small group in our home. And and so, yeah, we were this we were this family yeah. um, that if you only knew, if you only knew mm-hmm. what was really going on and what our reality was. Your story is fascinating. I could sit here and listen to it for <laughs> a lot longer, but we're just about out of time. Let me ask you this final question. What what final words do you have for people this morning about all of this? What would you say to us as you summarize everything? I want you to know that 
No amount of abuse is ever okay. And even if it happens just once, that's one time too many. And I want you to know that God does not ask you to be abused for the sake of this marriage. That there are worse things than getting a divorce. Mm -hmm. And it does not mean that you do not love God. It does not mean that you don't honor God. And it doesn't mean that you don't honor your marriage. Correct. May I read? You may. Okay. (laughs) Ephesians 5 28 through 33, I referred to this earlier, and this is the message version. It says, husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. That's how a husband is supposed to, the the husband is supposed to love his wife in a way that makes her whole. Mm -hmm not broken. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. No one abuses his own body, does he? No, he feeds it and pampers it. That's how Christ treats us, the church, since we are a part of his body. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two, they become one flesh. This is a huge mystery, and I don't pretend to understand it. What is clearest to me is the way Christ treats the church. And this provides a good picture of how each husband is to treat his wife, loving himself and loving her, and how each wife is to honor her husband. And this is how God intended marriage to be. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage, and, and I love how they word that in the message. You have a ministry now, uh, and how, if people want to find out more about you or the ministry, how do they do that? If you would like to, I am... All over social media. Uh, But if you look for me on social media, it is Carla Bunner Webb. Carla Bunner Webb. And you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram. And you can find me on LinkedIn. And and my website, I have a website that's just CarlaWebb.org. But I, I... I don't, in my normal life, I'm not Carla Bunner Webb. Like, I don't hyphenate my name. But the Bunner has a significance to me because it goes back to who I was. Mm -hmm. I was Carla Bunner. And Carla Bunner was someone who uh, I was proud to be. Mm -hmm. I was proud. Carla Bunner did things um, that... She was fearless, and she was not afraid, and she would do things that nobody had ever done before, and um, I was proud of that. And my husband that I'm married to now, he actually knew me in high school, and whenever he messaged me on Facebook to connect with me, he said, hey, what's up, Bunner? Mm-hmm. And so it, in the realm of domestic violence, it was important to me to have 
that bunner mm-hmm. in there to go back to who I was sure. That's great. and reclaim that. Uh, last thing, there was a yeah. book uh, that you recommended yes. to me earlier today, yeah. and, and it's called Why Does He Do That? Yes. And uh, who wrote the book? Lundy Bancroft. Okay, so that's a book that you would recommend that people get and just have the opportunity to yes. read and to try to understand this a little bit more. Yeah. Why Does He Do That? by Lundy Bancroft. Yes. Okay. We were going to wrap up with a final song, but this has really uh, been so fascinating that I wanted to just give you the opportunity to develop this a little bit more. It's time to wrap up. Um, If you would, just stay with me here for one more second, because I'm sure that when I close in prayer in just a moment, there are going to be some people that want to talk to you. Um, Let me just say this, that one of the things that we always want to do here at City Church is make sure that Christ is elevated Uh, in our services. And as I listen to Carla and as I think about this, it seems to me that the cross changes. She read this passage. The cross changes our whole view of marriage. What's marriage supposed to look like? Well, the cross changes that. that Husbands are to love their wives uh, sacrificially. The cross changes also, I think, what we do with our suffering. And that because Christ suffered, I don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to be ashamed of what you suffered. And so you can actually be the kind of person who comes out and helps other people, comfort other people with that with which you have been comforted as well. I think the cross also changes the way that we see our abuser too, right? You can actually forgive them. Um, It's hard to do. It's not easy. It's not a one-moment, one-time thing, but you can uh, forgive them. But I want to be very clear to people who might find themselves in a marriage like this or a relationship like this. If you're in that kind of a relationship, get out of it. Get out of it now. Don't wait. If it's marriage, get out of the marriage. If you're dating or engaged to someone like that, get out of the relationship. Don't wait. This isn't what God has called you to. And finally, I think that, you know, it'd be very easy in response to this. And I, 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 you know, I don't know if you have struggled with this at all, but I can imagine it'd be very easy for a woman in particular that comes out of a relationship like this to hate all men. Yeah. It would be very easy. (laughs) You are correct. (laughs) But on the other side of that, we remember that a man died for our sins, the man Jesus Christ. And so it's not men that are to be hated. It's the abuse itself that is to be hated. And that we can always look to the Lord Jesus Christ as the example, the prototype of what a man was supposed to be. Absolutely, Carla, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming and sharing your story. Uh, It's very courageous of you to do so. Uh, I want to close in a word of prayer, but before I close, would you just show your appreciation this morning to... Thank you. Fantastic job. Fantastic. I apologize to the band who uh, we're going to close up with a final song. Sorry, guys, but uh, it's time to go. So I'm going to just close this with a word of prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you so much for Carla this morning. I thank you for her courage. Thank you for the fact that she is willing to come here and to minister to people here. Uh, as a result of what she has been through. Lord, I pray that you would bless her ministry. pray that you would bless her. Lord, I pray that uh, you would heal her children. 
for boys. Just, Lord, I just pray that you would heal them. And then, Lord, I pray that for those that are here in this, in, in, in this kind of a marriage, that this would speak to them today and that you would give them the courage to leave, to get away, to get out, because you haven't called them to this. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you suffered on the cross for us so that we don't have to be embarrassed and ashamed of our own suffering. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship this morning and pray. Amen.